Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. I'm Mark Pennington, the Director of the Centre here at King's College London. One of the themes we explore here at the CSGS is the relationship between formal and informal institutions in understanding the causes and consequences of the wealth of nations. It's surely unwise to address those questions without considering the ongoing relevance of the Scottish moral philosopher and political economist Adam Smith. Over the years on the podcast, we've had discussions with, among others, Barry Weingast, Deirdre McCloskey and Jesse Norman to discuss different aspects of Smith's legacy in political and economic thought. Today, I'm very pleased that we have with us Professor Adam Dixon. Adam is Professor of Sustainable Capitalism at Harriet Watt University up in Edinburgh, where he's based at Panmure House, which happens to have been the last and remaining home of Adam Smith himself. So welcome, Adam, to the Governance Podcast. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me here today. I'm uh, excited to um, discuss Smith and um, his contribution to economic and political thought. Terrific. So I wonder if we could start off before we actually get into talking about um, Smith himself. Uh, if you could just say a little bit about yourself and about the position that you have there at, at Harriet Watt. How, have you, how long have you been there and, and what is your what's your role up there? Yes. So I um, was appointed just last uh, February 2023 as the inaugural Adam Smith Chair in uh, Sustainable Capitalism. Um, before that, I was at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and previous to that in uh, at the University of Bristol for about eight and a half years. As you can tell from my accent, I'm American, though I've spent um, quite a number of years uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, most of my adult life, I did. Um, I studied at uh, Sciences Po in Paris, where I did a master's. Um, and then ended up doing a DPhil at Oxford in the UK. Um, and so, yeah, so what, what is my new position? So I, I have um, what I think is an, an immense honor to, to um, have access to Adam Smith's last home. I was approached by a headhunter in the summer of 2022 um, with a question, would you like to come and be uh, this new Adam Smith Chair in Sustainable Capitalism at uh, Edinburgh Business School or at Watt University? And at first I thought, you know, why would they why would they want me? Wouldn't they want a, um, a true Smith scholar? Um, uh, and there's a reason why they didn't didn't want specifically a Smith scholar. Um, and eventually I was offered the position and um, I started in February and it's been um, not quite a year yet. I'm still landing and, and getting my feet and trying to develop and, and see where we can go with this. Um, and as we'll talk in, you know, um, in a minute here, um, we have a lot of ambitions for what we want to do as a, as a, as a home of economic and social debate, but also as a as a place to um, advance or let's say re-advance enlightenment thinking. Um, in the spirit of Adam Smith and um, Scottish Enlightenment or the Enlightenment generally. That's great. And, and it looks as though, um, I mean, looking on your or the website about the Panmure Pan House itself, it looks like there's been quite an amazing restoration project there. It looks like a really um, amazing space for running events. So could, can you say a little bit about how that the house has been restored um, and what the what the sort of general purpose of that restoration has been? Right. So so before I get to the restoration, it's worth um, 
knowing a little bit about the house um, and, yeah. and its most famous uh, residence. So the house was uh, originally built in uh, 1691 uh, by the Earl of Panmere, who used it as his uh, town seat um, in Edinburgh. Um, now, the history is a bit more kind of involved in that, but the more important thing is that by 1778, um, this person named Adam Smith uh, took out a lease on it and lived there for um, uh, 12 years until he died in 1790. Um, and we have, um, there's quite a bit of information on the restoration or the history of the house. But um, after Smith lived there, so I mean, just to say when he did live there, I mean, he what's, what's so special about the house, um, not simply for, if I would say for anyone that is um, a political economist or economist or a social scientist or historian, um, you know, knowing that Adam Smith did major revisions to the wealth of nations and added a third to the theory of moral sentiments within the 12 years that he lived at that house, um, not simply the fact that he died there, um, it's quite special. And, and more so is that you, Panmer House was, a, was a, a place to go to debate ideas. He had regular you know, Sunday suppers um, where other luminaries of the Scottish Enlightenment came to discuss the ideas and the issues of their day. Um, Joseph Black, who incidentally discovered carbon dioxide, he was a, a physician um, and chemist. Uh, James Hutton, who's notionally the father of uh, geology, was the first to come up with the idea of deep time. You know, so this wasn't simply just economics and moral philosophy. This was also discussions about natural philosophy, um, you know, what I think any intellectual that um, likes multiple ideas, I mean, that's what was happening at this. It wasn't this siloed place that was just talking about, um, you know, economics, let's say. Yep. Uh, Edmund Burke, I believe, uh, visited him there. Um, so it has this special place in the history of of intellectual thought of economics, of moral philosophy, of, of political theory, um, and we're lucky to have it. Now, after Smith died, um, it went through various um, uh, transformations. It was an office for a, a nearby um, a foundry, I believe. Um, by the middle of the 20th century, it was largely in decay, and it was then rescued by um, the uh, owner of the Scotsman newspaper, um, and was turned into the Canongate Boys Club. Uh, the Scotsman, the owner of the Scotsman newspaper, is incidentally the um, the part of the the Thomson Reuters family, that uh, mm -hmm. very wealthy Canadian uh, media yep. conglomerate family. Um, and they invested money to turn this into the Canongate Boys Club. It was a boys club for um, a couple of decades, and then it went into the hands of the Edinburgh Council and used for other um, uh, purposes. But it was largely um, left in a pretty sad state. Um, and then 2008, um, the founder of Edinburgh Business School, Keith Lumsden, saw that it was uh, on the market um, and uh, had the great idea of, you know, well, Adam Smith lived here. Let's do something with this. Mm -hmm. And he the uh, Edinburgh Business School and um, which is the graduate school or the, the business school of, of Harry Watt University um, made an offer to the to the council. Um, now, what's interesting about the history of that is that um, they underbid the highest bidder, 
was a property developer that wanted to turn it into housing. Um, mm-hmm. And the council, for good reason, gave it to went with with Harriet Watt, which I think, thankfully, it's you know it would be um, a travesty, you know, it'd be sacrilegious if you like if it if it were turned into a some Airbnbs, which um, much of that part of town is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in 2008, it was purchased and then um, money was raised to uh, um, um, renovate it and took 10 years. There was some stops and starts, um, but after spending 5.6 million pounds um, and renovating it to a 21st century standard, but still within the style and um uh, it's uh, it is what it is today, and and I you know I welcome you to come and, and see it, and I hope you hope you will. Um, but it's not a very large uh, space. Um, we have um, a reading room, which um, we hold hold dinners and other events in, and um, it was the same what we believe the dining room that Smith um, held his dinners in. So when we're sitting there, it's I always think and say to people, listen, you're you know we're in Smith's. <laughs> you know, dining room and you're, we're dining together. Let's, you know, isn't that exciting? And then we also have a lecture room and that's where we, we hold our lectures and our, many of our lectures are, are recorded. Um, so you can see them and it's not a very big space. And I think that's what's special about it is that we, we can only hold around 50 to 60 people in the lecture um, room. And that was the actual, the room that we believe Smith, uh, his study, right? So when people are giving lectures in that room and this is the, the it was the room where he, revised the wealth of nations, where he revised and added to the theory of moral sentiments, where he was working on other works that he had burnt at the end of his, uh, after he died. So it's just a a very kind of special place um, uh, for anyone that's um, um, not simple. You don't even have to be a a fan of Adam Smith, but it's just to know that this was a place where someone so crucial to to Western political and economic thought, you know, this is where he was. And, and that's why I feel so privileged to um, have been given this position to take his his legacy forward and 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 to convene and to bring people back to the home that um, uh, Smith lived in. Well, I mean, I, I, I'd love to come up and visit it myself, and I'd certainly encourage um, anyone listening to the podcast to check out the website there and um, think about if you're passing through Edinburgh, uh, going to pay Pamela House a visit and maybe attending some of the events that you're putting on. I mean, you've got a very interesting program of um, Smith lectures. C- could you say a little bit about those, what the purpose of that series is? Yeah. So so at the moment we have um, um, we're in the we're in the process. I, I like to think of us as a um, as a startup. Right. So it was only yeah. officially opened in 2018 and then the pandemic came along. Mm. Um, and then so, you know, getting the programming up and running has been been slower than I think initially planned. Um, but then obviously, I think part of m- my arrival is is to really kick things into gear. Um, but our two, you know, the lecture series that we have. So we have the Adam Smith lecture series. Then we have what's called the Lights of Caledonia lecture series. And that one is where we invite people to um, speak about Scott's uh, people's contribution to the world, um, including Adam Smith. Um, but the flagship lecture series is the Adam Smith lecture series. And so far, we have only been able to do one or two of those a year, but we have plans to um, to develop that. To, so it's we're doing 
at least for these, you know, one a quarter um, as as we go forward, um, so that we can maximize the house. And I like to think that it's, it's, you know, I could find a hundred economists and and thinkers that would love to come give a lecture. So there's we're not in short supply of finding people that to to come. Um, and so so far we've had um, so most recently we had Neil Ferguson, uh, the economic mm-hmm. historian, gave a lecture. Yeah. Uh, at the end of February, on February 29th, um, we have Branko Milanovic. Oh, yeah. um, we had um, in the early summer, of, was it, I believe June, we had Manush Shafiq, who was the president of the London School of Economics and now is mm-hmm. the president of Columbia University. Um, we've had, prior to my arrival, Andy Haldane, who now the, um, heads the Royal Society of Arts yes, in London, but was also at the Bank of England. Um, and uh, the first was Sir Angus Deaton, uh, the Nobel yeah. Prize winning um, economist. Um, and so we're inviting more. We, those are the kind of the caliber of people that we want to to invite or are trying to invite. So, you know, obviously, like I said, Branko Milanovic is coming and and what you'll notice too is, you know, it's not just specifically, you know, we don't, we're not partisan, if you like. You know? So yep. my idea is that we we have, you know, the likes of Branko, who Milanovic, who, you know, Branko's pretty heterodox. Um, mm-hmm. Neil Ferguson obviously is more, uh, you, you know, you could call him a classical liberal, um, conservative. Um, Angus Deaton is more, I would say, on the social democratic. Uh, wing of of things um because ultimately you know for me it's um you know i i have what i think about things but what i find so you know and this is where i i i i you know true to you know this is why i think of myself as a as a, as a liberal as a classical liberal is i like to bring in different viewpoints and different mm-hmm. speakers to um, you know, so it's, you know, I'm happy to bring in a libertarian and also then bring in a Marxist, right? I mean, that's kind of, yep. that's interesting, right? But we don't do that enough. No, we don't. I mean, that's really what should be happening everywhere, isn't it? That there yeah. should be spaces where people can have productive conversations and just take these amazing thinkers and the ideas and just play with them. And there's not enough of that happening at the moment. So I, that's one of the things I find really exciting about what you're doing. And those, the list of speakers you've mentioned there, I mean, is really yeah, it's, it's really terrific. So congratulations yeah, you, on putting that together. Yeah, thank you. No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, fortunately, we've been supported um, uh, with uh, support from Bailey Gifford has, has uh, kindly donated quite a bit of money to help us support doing that. And, um, you know, so nothing's done uh, for free, unfortunately. But I think it's um, it's really nice to to have the capacity to to bring people together. And I say, you know, just the lecture series alone, that's one thing we want to do. I mean, we're trying to, you know, ideally, as, as we as we move along, I mean, I, I have ideas for more lecture series, more kinds of, you know, academic symposia, symposia that bring together uh, people from the world of business, politics, um, to just do, like you said, bring these, you know, bring ideas into dialogue, right? Bring different ideas together. And so it's not simply, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a problem of siloed thinking within academia but there's also the problem of siloed thinking elsewhere right and, yeah. I, and I think it's the nice part about being a Penmer house is once you're there you can say to people if you're you know someone from the business world that you know you can sit back for a minute and not worry about you know the quarterly report let's think more deeply about a particular issue um but just to you know mention go back go back to what you said or what you know we're talking about in terms of that siloed 
thinking. And I think that's what's really frustrating for me um, as an academic is seeing over the last, you know, 10 plus years that the the level of self-censorship, I think, within the academy um, and not simply the level of self-censorship, but this, you know, instead of just treating ideas for what they are, there's 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 too much appreciate too much attention given to the identity of the person that was writing it in the sense that yes the history you know who adam smith was as a person is interesting and useful sociologically to understand but we can still take separate him from the ideas um and i think that goes for for any number of speakers right you know it's a sense of uh, but that too often it's you know people are looking and saying you know, look at what happened with David Hume at the University of Edinburgh, you know, taking his yes. name off of, of the building. Yeah. You think, well, OK, yeah, this, that footnote was unfortunate. Um, but, you know, does that mean we need to cancel one of the most significant uh, philosophers of the English language that we've ever had and that who has been, you know, so uh, I would say crucial to supporting free and open debate that allows people to cancel people if you know what i mean yeah so well i mean it's a slightly different example but i i had i think it illustrates the problem of people not sort of talking across perspectives so i remember one of the first uh, lectures i gave um when i started my my career which is like over 20 well it's nearly 25 years ago actually um and I was giving a, a lecture, which was an introduction to public choice theory mm. um, and basically discussing public choice theory as a kind of special interest theory of the state, a capture theory of the state. And I had several people coming up to me after the lecture saying, when did you become a Marxist? Um, <laughs> and it was just extraordinary because they were of this view that if you talked about things like state capture, um, or the power of vested interests, um, that that meant you must have some kind of Marxist perspective. Um, and I had to explain to them that there's, within the liberal tradition, there's, f- for centuries, there's been a whole focus on capture theories of the state. And mm. I mean, it, it's an interesting space where you could have discussions between Marxists and liberals about different forms of capture. But it struck me even then that that was an, in, uh, an example of how, you know, the People simply weren't aware that there could be such a thing as a liberal theory of state capture. Right, right. No, but just the the sense of, I mean, I in in a lot of my scholarship and some of my collaborations, um, you know, I've mobilized Marxian thinking. Yeah. Um, and Marx Marx's scholarship, um, and and I've also kind of included that in in lectures, and then. You know, I mean, some people are excited by that, but then you also get the the occasional. So you you know you must be a Marxist. And I say, mm. no, I'm not necessarily a Marxist. I mean, I, I can read and understand that literature and I can find use in it, but that doesn't mean that I kind of, in you know, my private life am a radical that wants to, you know, tear down capitalism. Yeah. I know plenty of Marxists and, and, and scholars that are Marxists would, would uh, you know, hang me for, for, for <laughs> not being true to, uh, to the radical tradition. But I simply find that, you know, you can engage with different types of scholarship to examine particular problems, right? So you could yeah. take public choice theory and look at it. Okay, so what, how do we can, what, what does this help us understand 
you know, uh, how states operate. And you can imagine, you can put that next to Marxian theories of the state and, you know, the role of class and these different things, and you can put them together. And, you know, you don't have to, you know, believe in Buchanan, but yeah. as, a, as a kind of political leader, but you can still appreciate, okay, so this is how the public choice people think about it. This is how the Marxists think about it. And, you know, you might find one more, more you know, I'd say uh, compelling than the other. But the point is, is that we utilize and we mobilize different theories to help us understand contemporary problems or issues or historical development. And that's, you know, that's how we understand our world better. And I find that, unfortunately, there's less appreciation of that, right? There's less kind of bringing – and even when – what's the irony for me is that um, – and you've probably seen this, you know, I mean, in the last 10 years, you know, uh, funding councils, universities have talked this big, big talk about interdisciplinarity oh, yeah. and multidisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you think – not, I, I mean – are we actually doing that? Because we sh- weren't used to do that as an as a normal thing. But then all of a sudden it's like, no, we're you know, we need to we're doing this interdisciplinarity. But then the interdisciplinarity is actually just looking at various different theories and talking about them together. But, you know, it's it often isn't happening, even though there's this big push to do that, partly because they want to create something new when actually the liberal tradition of kind of university life was always interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary and there was engagement across ideas but i mean just speaking about the interdisciplinary issue there i was wondering whether i mean you have a background in uh economic geography as i understand it and actually way back in the past um i did a geography degree as well um and i was wondering whether you felt that economic geography the nature of the field is actually more interdisciplinary and maybe it was one of the reasons that you got into some of these questions um, because that space does kind of engage in different perspectives you know you have insights from from economics but you also have sociological institutional theories that kind of blend together in economic geography in a way that sort of standard economics the kind that is conducted in most economics departments really doesn't engage in those questions at all right no so i mean i think you just, you know, by way of biographical background or educational, I mean, my undergraduate, I did it in uh, international affairs um, at George Washington University in, in Washington, D.C. And I chose that specifically, um, partly because I wanted to be in D.C. because I loved politics and I loved kind of, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to get out of, uh, I grew up in, in Colorado, which is a beautiful state, but I oh, yeah. um, have gone <laughs> gone uh, eastward since. Um, and but I chose that degree program because I could study history and economics and politi- politics and international relations. And um, there was a huge language component. And I ended up doing a second degree in Spanish uh, literature. Um, and and I did that because I was just interested in lots of different things. And that's always been my difficulty is I've never been able to just stick to one thing. And I remember taking economics courses and thinking, OK, this is useful. But then I was like, oh, I still feel like I'm missing something. Right. You know, when you're just looking at uh, uh, some of the, the algebra and, and I wasn't necessarily the strongest statistician or, or, or mathematician. So I you know, was attracted to more other kinds of, of thought. And then I did the degree in in, in Paris at Sciences Po, and the reason I went there as well was because, I, you know, it was an opportunity to do a degree in French before Sciences Po turned 
Now it's uh, primarily English, but I was I studied there when it was before that kind of shift happened, and I was still able to experience the the very French um, kind of uh, a system at Sciences Po, which is another kind of if we had more time, a, a story in itself. Um, but again, there I ch- you know chose that to go to Sciences Po because again it was in, it was multidisciplinary. We, you you had to study politics and history and and what we'd say geography, um, in addition to some other kind of, I did quite a bit of finance and accounting courses, incidentally. And then I kind of landed, uh, went back to the U.S. for a, a year and a half, and then a friend of mine said, oh, you should come to Oxford and, and do a DPhil. And I um, said, okay, and so applied and then got in, and it just it happened to be in, uh, uh, in the geography uh, school. Yeah. I did my DPhil with a guy named uh, Gordon Clark, um, now, do I feel like a geographer? I mean, I did the PhD there and then I went to the University of Bristol and worked in the School of Geographical Sciences. But, you know, back to your question about um, what about economic geography as a discipline? I guess the, the long, you know, the, the short answer to, to that is, you know, from my bi- biographies, I, I ended up doing the DPhil in geography and then remaining in a, in a geography department as an academic, at least initially in my career, was because it was open, right? So I, in economic geography, I didn't feel that I was constrained in what I was reading and the kinds of questions I wanted to ask, right? So, I, you know, the, a lot of the work that you do um, at King's, you know, looking at institutional economics, right? So I've read yeah. Lots of Eleanor Ostrom and mm-hmm. and institutional economics generally. I've read uh, evolutionary economic theory. You know, I mean, across as in addition to kind of reading neoclassical economics and trying to understand what what the economists are doing or development economics, right? You know, so it's quite broad. And the nice thing about geography, I would say, generally as a field, is it's you know it's a microcosm of the university. Um, when I was at the University of Bristol and we had open days, I would say to parents and students there, mainly the parents, because you always have to sell it to the parents, right? You have to charm the mothers and then they, they'll want their children to come to, to Bristol. And I would say, you know, you come and do a geography degree here because, and I gave my experience of being, you know, American, and a university degree in America, it's liberal arts, right? You do lots of different mm-hmm. courses and that's what's nice about it. And so in, in Britain, you know, you could, you go and read physics for three years or you go and read economics for a few years. But most of you, what, you're 17, 18 years old. You really don't know what you want to be when you grow up. And, you know, half of you want to go to the city anyways to make lots of money. And, you know, as long as you can kind of count and, you know, do some math, you'll be all, you'll be all right. What you really want to do is exp- expand your horizons. And the nice thing about geography is, is it's it you can do a degree in it and you study everything from physics to philosophy under one roof. And now that's not, but but you know some will say, oh, but that doesn't allow for specialization. I think that's not true, right? So everybody mm-hmm. thinks, oh, it's just a general degree and it's mm-hmm. doing maps and stuff. And I would say, no, no, no. I mean, I, when I think about the undergraduates I had at Bristol, they would leave with a high level of statistical training. Um, mm-hmm. They would leave, uh, you know, if they did more physical geography, understanding of climate modeling. Um, mm-hmm. Some would focus more on, you know, there was quite a bit of French geophilosophy that they would leave with. So, you know, they'd be experts on Foucault and Deleuze and, you know, postmodern thought. And in addition, you know, there was other, you know, 
other kind of understanding of sociology and development. So they would leave with actually quite a bit of, of skills and, and knowledge that when I look at many of them now, um, it's been, been a number of years, but I follow some, uh, you know, LinkedIn with some of them and they have amazing careers doing really interesting things. And so I think, you know, that's, that's for me what I'm attracted about being, um, what, you know, being a, in, in geography notionally, but then even within the discipline, I, I mean, a lot of my publications, I've, uh, published quite a bit in, let's say, w w what you could call uh, um, international political economy. Yeah. Uh, I had a paper in a law journal once, right? So it, there's a freedom to do that, I think, which mm -hmm. is liberating. Um, and I would say that's one reason why they, um, uh, why I was attracted to the job in Edinburgh to take up the Adam Smith chair, because um, they weren't looking for specifically for uh, either a what we think of as an as a classical kind of neoclassical economist, nor were they looking for someone that is uh, a, a, per se an, a, a Smith scholar that, you know, can tell you every single quote that Smith uh, ever wrote. Um, but they wanted someone that was broadly capable of hosting, I would say, a range of different scholars um, at being able to identify who we should bring into the house, what kind of activities we should we have, how can we build an intellectual community, how can we bring different parts of, of the university, particularly because, you know, Harriet Watts, primarily a STEM institution, very strong yep. in, in computer science and in engineering, and how, you know, how do we bring that kind of the tech tech crowd into the, to the social sciences? And um, and I think, I'd like to think one of the reasons, I mean, they've, they've told me actually, they, they hired me is that they, think I have the capacity to be flexible and and open and intellectually curious. And I would say that partly to do with my the training I had, not simply in geography, but that exposure mm -hmm. I had to not feeling that I had to be tied to one specific discipline um, as an academic. So was it through the work you were doing in economic geography uh, or the IPE type material that you started to get interested in Adam Smith specifically? How, do, how did you actually develop that sort of interest there in, in, in some of his ideas and thoughts? Yeah, so, I mean, I, again, I, I, I would never claim to be um, an Adam Smith scholar. Um, yeah. Now, if you ask me in 10 years time, Given the position I have, I will likely be an Adam Smith scholar just because <laughs> I, I have I, I I by default I kind of need to do more Smith you know I need to be more of a Smith kind of scholar um, though I I look at so many of the amazing Smith scholars out there and I just think there's there's such great work that why you know why kind of um, it's it's how, what what do I have to contribute right I mean yeah. for example your colleague at King's Paul Sager I think his recent yeah. book on Smith yeah. is, is fantastic yeah. and yeah. you know it's yeah. uh, um but again I you know going back to kind of what I was saying before it's I mean I like to read widely and so I read Smith scholarship and so I can kind of utilize it and mobilize it and but in, I guess the the bigger question about you know how I became interested in the Smith and you know one thing I say to people that come to Panmure House is, is that, you know, you have the the Smith aficionados, right? Those that just kind of put him on this pedestal and, and in, a, in a kind of way that, um, you know, uh, Marxist scholars do with, with, with Marx or critical scholars do with Karl Marx, you know, they, they put him on this, on this pedestal. And there's, there's a, there's a bit of that with, with mm -hmm. Adam Smith. Um, and I'm always a bit, 
kind of worried about that kind of hero worship, if you like. Yeah. Um, it can be quite. Um, yeah. I think. I just. It, I. It kind of. Smith would not want that. Let's say. I would think. And so. It's strange as well, isn't it? Because both both Smith and Marx have a labor theory of value. Um, <laughs> So and it's, it's it's quite hard for you know Smith fans to be <laughs> supporting a labor theory of value. I just thought yes. I'd throw that one in. <laughs> no, yeah, it should. But I think you know. So I, what what for me with with how I came to being. So what, yeah, back to what I was saying about when when people come to the house and I say you know we're all we're all Smith scholars, whether mm. we like to think it or not. Um, and I say that at least for 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 those of us that have studied in the social sciences is that even if you haven't read uh the wealth of nations or the theory of moral sentiments it has likely been influential of the people you have been writing reading right so um you know we've mentioned karl marx many times you know karl marx was critical of smith but he was also kind of working in that tradition right so it's you know smith is part of the canon he's there um and then I also say to people that, you know, you're touched by Smith because he has also been so significant in terms of influencing policy. And and even if it's influencing it in the wrong way or, or in a way that Smith is not, you know, wouldn't necessarily agree with. Right. So his name has been used. So we've been we're all kind of touched by Smith in a really important yeah. um, way. Um, I mean, not everyone, but I think, um, but even then, I mean, you know, I, I, people have told me, oh yeah, you know, Smith, he was, he's really popular in China or used to be kind of, you know, he's quite popular in China. And you think, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You know, there's a whole kind of, you know, uh, Smith scholarship happening in, in China. Um, you know, so this is where I would say that's my interest in Smith is always, it was, you know, I've, you know, as an undergraduate, you know, you learn about, you know, uh, uh, specialization and hmm. and trade and um the invisible hand um but you know i would say it's, the interesting thing is in hindsight you think back i don't know if i was taught smith correctly right you know the more i read about smith um or have read about smith you know uh, um as a as a kind of as an academic i think oh wait a minute how i was taught about smith is wrong or or when you see his you know it's interesting how smith is mobilized um, particularly in critical scholarship, it's always the, oh the Smithian market, the Smithian view of things, and you think it's just kind of this throwout, right? That's not actually very robust. Um, and so that's where I would say that's kind of where I sit with Smith now, and and now in the position I I'm uh, utilizing Smith much more. Um, um, but I for me it's less the Again, like there's such great Smith scholarship out there, but for, for me, what's important and the things I want to do at Panmere House, it's the spirit of mm. Adam Smith. It's the spirit of the Enlightenment. It's the what we take for granted about what had happened in the 18th century that just was this flourishing of intellectual curiosity engagement that has, has shaped the modern world. And that for me is what's more important than you know what yeah. did Smith say in Book Six of the Wealth of Nations. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. that 21st century. What could we do now? How can we be more open? How can we foster free speech, free debate, and ultimately free societies? Right. So this comes mm. back to for me the importance of liberal values and the importance of discussing those in a world where 
democracy is under threat. Democracy is in decline globally. There's more authoritarian governments that are much more explicit and vocal that are, um, you know, so I think for me, that's where it's, that's what's more important than a specific, you know, part of Smithian kind of thought. It's more the, the yeah. general liberal tradition. And yeah. and here's where I think I'm probably becoming more of a vocal classical liberal liberal but i feel like we need to at the, at the at the current kind of world conjuncture well that might be a good point to to move on to the, the next question i was going to ask you so i mean it actually relates, relates to the the title of your your job so you're a professor of sustainable capitalism so can you tell us what what is sustainable capitalism right so so the interesting thing is when i was approached for the chair that title was had already been decided, right? So uh -huh. they'd already decided on on sustainable capitalism. And I thought to myself, okay, so I'm going to take this job, and all my let's say critical scholar friends, colleagues are going to laugh at me, um, and you know, uh, what am I going to do with that? But then I look at it and think, you know, then you tell people in the business world, think, oh, that's fantastic. That's that's the that's what we're thinking about. It's perfect, right? So, so I knew then going into it that some were going to hate it, some were going to love it. But I, you know, for me, you know, sustainable capitalism, the way I look at it is, um, you know, the retort from those that are critical is that, well, capitalism is never sustainable. Then hmm. I think, yeah, but it's the most innovative economic system that we have and have ever had. And um, I would rather have capitalism than some form of authoritarian, uh, you know, control, um, which unfortunately the history of socialism was, was, you know, uh, uh, uh was authoritarian, uh, yeah. in many ways. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, I, depending on who I'm talking to, you know, I, my response can be sustainable capitalism is how do we sustain capitalism? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I can play yeah. on the words, right. Um, yeah. But I do believe it's, you know, how do we sustain capitalism? But the the good parts about capitalism, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not naive in the sense that there's still parts and, you know, you know, there's still exploitation that I think is unfortunate, yeah. right? There's still, yeah. you know, there's still uh, uh, things that we need to recognize, you know, massive inequality, right? Um, and we need, we should try to find ways of doing that. But do I generally believe in a kind of market-based economy as being a better way of allocating resources and fostering innovation? Yes. But, you know, that's a huge spectrum of how you do that, yep. right? Um, Is there know, an environmental part, dimension to the sustainable well, this, and sustainable yeah. capitalism as yes. well? So this yeah. is this is the kind of the other part of it, right? So the one part is this sort of sustainable capitalism and how do we sustain capitalism in relation to other economic systems that yeah. or more yeah. authoritarian, less liberal. Um, but then the other, obviously, is the sustainable on in terms of the environment and how do we how do we kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do we not kill our planet? Right. So I think this that's the the bigger and that's the zeitgeist. Right. That's what yeah. governments around the world, businesses around the world, investors are trying to figure this out. Right. How do we. How do we make capitalism more um, sustainable or how do we how do we you know have green growth, if you like? I know there's there's degrowthers that think we should do something completely different, but I don't think that's realistic. And so, again, I think, 
part of what I want to do at Penver House is, is understand what is sustainability, how can we make things more sustainable. And what I tend to tell people is I I get really um, and this is kind of my you know partly as an academic you know you, you're necessarily skeptical of everything. Um, and so when I look at ESG and corporate social responsibility and you know so much of it just looks like virtue signaling and you know, it's or and I think to myself, and again, this is where that I put my kind of more libertarian hat on. And I think, well, why should we have so much state intervention? Is this necessarily a good thing? What are the ways, you know, and I know you've you've done some work on this as well, you know, trying to understand, you know, what are the policy options and, you know, what is what is government intervention that doesn't constrain, let's say, individual freedom? For example, mm-hmm. right. So it's about bring. And for me, again, it's I'm. It's what I want to do with Panmer House is bring multiple perspectives together yeah. to hash these things out, right? And I don't think you could see that in different ways. There could be different yes. combinations. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So just following up on that, you've you've also written quite extensively in your your sort of academic work, published work about the concept of state capitalism, mm-hmm. um, and that's. That's always struck me as a as an interesting concept. Um, so, you know, you, I mean, you will you have people in the past who have been people within, you know, a certain form of Marxism that claim that there's never been socialism. We've always had forms of state capitalism. I, I've never been convinced by by those kind of arguments. Now you actually have people talking about a particular model of capitalism, mm. um, which uses the state in a certain way, and they use it in a more positive sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess people like Mariana Mazzucato are in yes. that camp mm-hmm. and some others. So can you say a little bit about how in your work you you understand the term state capitalism? How do yes. you define it? Yeah. So so if, if we have enough time remaining, I hope we do. Yeah. Um, yeah so this is came out of a project I led a European Research Council project on sovereign wealth funds. And in the context of that, in 2018, I had a brilliant postdoc that came to work with me uh, named Ilya Salami, who's just started at uh, Cambridge University. And one of the first things we did, because I'd always thought to myself, I keep hearing state capitalism. I personally had used it offhand a number of times. Um, but not in a serious theoretical way. And I, I, one of the first meetings that I had with Elias, I said, we need to do something on, let's write a paper where we just kind of think about what is state capitalism. And that's kind of spawned a series of different papers and special issues. Most of these are are um, open access that you so so if yep. people go to my Google Scholar profile, you can yep. you can read most of those. And I should also say that we have a book um, coming out in probably the next six months with Oxford University Press. Titled the Specter of State Capital, um, and so basically what what happened is then you know Ilias and I working together, and Ilias is brilliant, and he's um, uh, he's very w- well read in, in in particularly in Marxist scholarship um, and, and state theory. Um, that's one reason why I, mm-hmm. I hired him is he's he's brilliant in that regard, and he could do things that I I can't um, or bring me into contact with literatures that I wasn't so familiar with, and and what we found is that you know, what people meant by state capitalism was a, a number of different things, right? So you had people say state capitalism, they always associate with China, so it's a big yeah. state. And and I never 
nor Ilias kind of thought that was really credible or, you know, they would say, oh, a sovereign wealth fund means there's a state capitalist, uh, it's a state capitalist country. And then, you know, just there's, you know, and then there was a paper that came out in uh, 2019, I believe that uh, um, where we go through these various theories. Um, and it was also, you know, like you mentioned Mariana Matsukato, right? You know, so you see in the context of her kind of work and um, where it's, so none of these theories that we thought were credible but one reason why we were motivated to kind of do this work was that on the one hand, we saw more people using state capitalism as a concept, and we also saw more state capitalism, right? So if you yeah. look at the global economy, you have state-owned enterprises are massively, are huge, state uh, sovereign wealth funds have grown significantly, you know, government spending programs after the financial crisis, after the mm. pandemic, now with kind of climate change. You know, if you're a libertarian, you're pulling your hair out if you look at, you know, the supposed liberal countries of the world. Mm. And if you look at the global economy as a whole, I mean, it's just state everywhere. Right. Mm. And so we thought we need to do some serious work about this because we weren't willing to accept that state capitalism was just China. Um, And so and we weren't willing to accept in a sort of varieties of capitalism mode where it's like, well, state China is state capitalist, but the United States isn't. And you mm. think, okay, well, there's significant differences between China, but then how do you account for the massive defense spending in the United States? How do you account for the Federal Reserve and its balance sheet? How do you account for the kinds of things that Matsukato is promoting, like Fred Block's, you know, hidden developmental state in the United States? You know, how do you kind of account for um, the norm in in the last 200 years where you had massive state intervention and state ownership in the economy. And now we have more of that again. And so for us, then the definition of state capitalism, it's it's twofold. Right. It's it's the um, it's the co I, I should I should read my definition that Elias and I have. So I don't so I get it uh, <laughs> correct correct in, in, in how do we do it. But the way we 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 define it is that um, we would say, sorry, I should, I should, is that it is the aggregate expansion of the state's role as promoter, supervisor, and over and owner of capital across the world economy. Mm-hmm. And this is characterized by two parallel developments. So on the one hand, as I mentioned, it's the the multiplication of of what we call state capital hybrids. So it's state-owned enterprises, it's national development banks, um, and this, and you, you see national development banks exploded across the uh, advanced economies and developing economies, uh, sovereign wealth funds, as I mentioned. So these institutions, if you like, of state capital, and then in combination with, with what we would say the development of muscular forms of statism, right? So that's the kind of the in the United States, it's the Chips Act, it's the Inflation Reduction Act, it's the kind of massive push by the state to drive innovation, to drive uh, attention to climate change. And we see this everywhere. But for us, what's important, this is where the kind of geographer comes in, is that we don't look at in terms of of methodological nationalism, of comparing nation states, right? We look at it from why is it globally, you know, so significant, why (laughs) why now, right? Um, And, you know, we have a few explanations for for why does it ascend now? Why 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 is it so significant? Um, and you know this is I, I shouldn't give out too much because I want people to go and read the book. Um, can can I ask you? 
can I yeah. ask you about this in the sense of are there you mentioned briefly there just flipping back a little bit the, the varieties of capitalism literature so are there varieties of state capitalism um I mean it strikes me if I, I'm thinking of two examples that you could think of as being state capitalist but it seems to me in very different ways would be um China and Singapore right so I mean China clearly has liberalized its economy a great deal compared to the way it was in the, the 1960s or 70s, but the state still plays um, yes. a huge role. Um, Singapore, the state is quite actively involved in the economic system in various kind of, through various kind of nudge mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you look at um, the size of the Singaporean state in terms of sort of government expenditure, mm -hmm. it is far smaller than most of the European states. Right. So, 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 how do you sort of make comparisons there in terms of these yeah. varieties of state capitalism? Yeah, so this, you know, this is what we were trying to avoid because, again, what happens, what, you know, and we we criticize. There's there's papers that have done that, right, where they try yeah. to sort of quantify what is a state capitalist economy because then they'll say, oh, it's you know, 30% of of state-owned enterprise, or it's yeah. you know, some kind of quant qu quotient of of uh, so you quantify and that. You know those decisions on what that means is arbitrary because then, like as you as you mentioned, right? So you take a comparison like like Singapore, which has this very has had at least a very kind of and still does I would say like an active state policy, right? I mean they, mm. there's there's a plan there, right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, has very kind of liberal tendencies, and as you mentioned, like the size of the state is much smaller there than in in Western Europe. Um, now, China, again, is an interesting case because it has, you know, this is is where it becomes difficult for us because I would, if you, ha if I had to compare economies, yes, China is state capitalist and America isn't, just as Britain isn't. But what we want, what we're, what we've tried to do in, in our, our work is to avoid that kind of dichotomy because, again, what I find is that it, it's, it makes it too easy to say China's state capitalist but then you say, well, what about, as you just mentioned, what, the, look at the yep. size of the state in, in Western Europe, right? So if yep. China is state capitalist, then is Norway state capitalist, mm. right? I mean, Norway mm. has $1.3 trillion in a sovereign fund. Yep. Its national oil company and gas company is Prince Money and mm. is a massive welfare state, right? So it's, mm. you know, huge public expenditure. Mm. Is that not state capitalist, right? So then, you know, so then you become this, this, the the comp the the difficulty in comparing across yeah. countries and for us it's it's useful to have a way so for us it's like what it would you know it's putting criticism you know putting pressure on this concept of state capitalism because it doesn't always it's not always I think useful and the other point for us is that it allows us to, to you know question you know this going back to you mentioned Mariana Matsukato right so she's making a positive case mm. for state capitalism. And in our work, we don't make a, a positive or, a, you know, a negative kind of case in the sense that yeah. we're, we're trying to promote something um, because, you know, it's it's more of just sort of setting out the, the, the I mean, we do various things in the book, but it's, you know, it's kind of setting out the, the issues at hand and how people are utilizing this concept. But we do kind of put some pressure on some of these uh, um, critical um uh, or, you know, the, those I would say positive, you know, state capitalism kind of work, because, again, I don't, um, you know, I'm less, I mean, this is where I, I, I kind of 
put my libertarian hat on because I asked myself, well, you know, because, again, what's interesting and this, I guess, what's important to, to point out about state capitalism as we see it now is that state owned enterprises, sovereign funds, you know, most government intervention, it's still very market based. Right. So these <laughs> state owned enterprises are very competitive. You know, they're trying to move, you know, so it's not as if this is some kind of government planning. Right. No. You know, they mostly it, operate in an international market sort of yeah, setting. Yeah, exactly, right? And so this is where, um, you know, it's – you. but then I – but I ask myself, okay, but are they going to be most competitive? And, and are, how do you – how do you um, – the, the concerns that, you know, liberals or libertarians have around too much state is do they crowd out? Are they most effective? Are there other means of of motivating and supporting economic growth or innovation? Um, and this is not to say that that Matsukatsu's arguments aren't aren't valid. I mean, I think you know there is something to be said about government research not not receiving a good return on its on its investment or or the value, if you like, going to to the private sector. But even then, I find that that argument's really hard to you know, how do you then, so then you create more state ownership and you create a bureaucracy and you, you know, create kind of some kind of strategic investment fund that, that is an ownership of these companies. And then I just find that I, I, I'm, this is where I, I, you know, again, sort of become a, a classical liberal and sort of think, don't, don't assume that your that the, 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 your outcomes are going to happen, right? You know, it's what, what are the unintended well, consequences? So let, Adam, let me give you let me give you my take on this and see what your reaction is. So in a way, it, it, my take on this, I, I guess, would relate to the issues you've set out in terms of the problems of actually identifying what state capitalism is. So, I mean, I speak to someone who is, I would call myself a sort of market liberal, definitely. Um, but coming from that position, I would never say that it's impossible for state enterprises to be successful or that it's impossible for um, the state to have successful innovations in particular cases. I think what I would be saying is for as many examples of success that you can find of the state in doing those kind of things, there are as many if not more examples of failure. And mm. the problem that we have is actually spotting the conditions Mm. about when these interventions will work or when they don't work. And mm. many of the success stories to me, they look like um, they're kind of accidents that mm. people subsequently give a kind of postdoc justification for. Yeah. Yeah. It's not clear that there's some underlying institutional theory that you could sort of try to design policy to bring about the beneficial outcomes. They always seem to arise from a kind of concatenation of events that there is no general theory for. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're thinking about sort of policy design, it seems to me we don't really get very far. That doesn't mean the idea isn't useful, but I'm, I'm skeptical of it more in the sense of sort of designing policy on the basis of this idea. So that's kind of my take. That, I, I would, I think, I would say we're 100% in agreement. I mean, you you kind of, if you said that way more eloquently than I could, but I, I agree completely. Um, and that's my reservation as, as well, is that if I if I take someone like Matsukato, I feel like she cherry picks really great examples. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like, well, you can look and say, well, the Americans put people on the on the moon and they did it really quickly. Hmm. 
But that doesn't mean you can go to Scotland and tell, oh, just set up some entrepreneurial yeah. state and boom, you're putting men on the moon or whoever on the moon, right? You know, it's like it just in and and I find or look at what you know Bandes in Brazil. It's been this great you know development bank. It's like really you know. So yeah. I find I agree with you. It's that it's it's really hard to find these examples. And I see this, you know, I do a lot of policy work or have done policy work um, and engagement on sovereign funds and strategic investment funds and and looking at governments trying to set these up and, you know, they'll look at these models. They, we want to be like Singapore. Look at what Tomasic has done, how great it was. And and what I find is that often, you know, they get the history wrong, right? So they're looking at Tomasic today and not Tomasic yeah. in, in, in the 1970s. Um, or ignoring kind of all the other massive kind of institutional things that have happened in Singapore that created the kind of success it is today. And so I would agree with you. This is the this is why I find the challenge with the kind of state capitalist mode of the kind of entrepreneurial state solution is that I find that it like you say, as a as a design thing, how do you what steps do you do you need to go through and how do you know you're gonna get there? Because there's it's just there's too many. So this is where I default on saying, well, okay, you want to have a sovereign fund, what for, what is the purpose? You know, uh, you know, for some reason, if you have to manage natural resource revenues, there's lots of reasons. So if you want to set up, you know, there's nothing wrong with setting up a, a strategic investment fund, but yeah. I wouldn't count on it just transform the economy. You can do it in it for a discrete thing. Hmm. Um, but ultimately, um, and I've said this in my policy work before and in advising governments um, at the OECD a number of years ago, I said, well, like, you know, there's basics that are more important, right? So it's what's the quality of your education? What's the quality of your, um, you know, uh, uh, public financial management, right? I mean, it's like basic things. What is what is parliament doing, right? So there's these kind of things that get the basics right first. And that's why, again, I, I kind of share your sort of market, market liberal take is that we can't design this perfect thing. We can set up kind of, we can cr- try to create some conditions hmm. and, and hope that there's good outcomes. But I think if you look at, again, so many of the examples of, you know, take East Asian developmental states, right? It's, you can look at, you can pin, pinpoint certain things that were really crucial decisions, but they were also, there's other things that were happening, like American military support and, you know, different kind of things that, that surpri- supported, supported that development. I don't think it's, I think it's really hard to recreate that. And that's why, again, I say I'm not trying to provide a state capitalist kind of positive thing, if anything. Yeah. I'm more skeptical than I than 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 you would think. Well, I, I've I've read some of your papers on this. I think they're really fascinating. So I'd, I'd really Thank encourage you. you know some of our listeners to to check them out. We're going to be tweeting out some of those on the the Twitter awesome. feed in the the next uh, couple of weeks as well. Um, but we're we're coming up to an hour, Adam. So we should probably yes. uh, draw to a close. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about you know what are, what are the sort of forthcoming events you've got happening at Pamir House that people may have an interest in uh, attending in the the next right. few months. And yeah, so the 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 one coming up is uh, on February 29th, and that's Branko Milanovic's oh, lecture. Yeah. Um, it uh, it's uh, we live stream that, and you can register to to do the to to watch it. I would advise people to go to panmerhouse.org and sign up for our newsletter. And on the website, you can find out where you can um, sign up to watch the live stream. And then after we'll be we'll have the video posted, um, and then sign up for the newsletter to find out more of what we're doing. Um, going forward. I mean, this is, like I said, we're a startup. And um, one of my jobs is to kind of actually 
turn it into the 21st century home of social and economic debate. So we have a lot, uh, a lot of plans in store. Um, and we're looking for more people to to watch our material and uh, contribute ideas as we go forward. And I, I just welcome people to be part of the journey um, of restoring um, the Enlightenment. Well, it seems to me you've got off to a very good start as a startup. So um, just remains to say thank you very much, Adam, for joining us today on the, the Governance Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.